Welcome to the Principles of Performance podcast, where we discuss how to optimize your health, fitness, and performance. Drawing on decades of experience of working as coaches, consultants, and trainers to top performers, athletes, and teens from professional sports to top universities to the U.S. military, Eric Degatti and Mike Perry discuss topics and strategies of how to perform at your highest level and be your very best. Join us and our friends and colleagues who are leaders in the fitness and performance industry as we investigate and challenge the most popular training, nutrition, lifestyle, and recovery protocols. Away we go. Here we are with the Principles of Performance, episode number 33. I am your host, Eric Degatti, along with my co-host, Mike Perry. Mr. Perry, we got another good one today. Absolutely. We're looking forward to having Rebecca today. Um, this is going to be a good one. I'm, uh, this is one where I, I can't wait to just kind of just listen and learn, um, because this is a you know an area that I, I don't know as much about, and I'm, I'm excited to be the student, so we're really excited about today's podcast. So, you know, in our course, one of the things when Mike and I were putting it together, we put real early in the class to stress the importance of, of really getting buy-in from your clients and, and, and the art of building rapport and trust with them. And so we, we highly recommend and lean into the work of, of Brett Bartholomew and his book, Conscious Coaching. And so when we were putting together a little wish list of guests, we reached out to the, to, to the folks at Art of Coaching and said, you know, I'd love to have somebody come on. And, and we struck gold, you know, pun intended. Uh, we got uh, Rebecca Gold, who, who started Art of Coaching in June of 22. And she's basically, as we were talking just before we came on, she basically is the, the, the chief everything officer. She does everything from coaching, event facilitation, operations and marketing, one-on-one mentoring and coaching. Uh, but she's had a pretty storied history uh, in our field where she's served as an assistant strength and conditioning coach at University of North Texas. Uh, in addition to her responsibilities with women's soccer and softball, she also oversaw facility management and served as the internship coordinator. Um, before that, she was the Olympic director of human performance at SMU and assistant director at both uh, UW-Milwaukee and Arkansas State. Um, and through her time at these institutions, she worked with a variety of different teams in both leadership and assistant roles, uh, mentored interns, led staff development, and ran team building and leadership curriculums. Um, she's got a, a strong background with a, a bachelor's in kinesiology, strength and conditioning. Um, uh, she interned also at, at Marquette on the sports performance staff and then uh, began her graduate assistantship at the uh, Citadel um, in South Carolina, which is where she was telling me she met Brett. Um, and she has her master's degree from there in, in uh, leadership. So want to welcome you, uh, Rebecca, to the, uh, to the uh, podcast here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I know that's a little cliche, but I actually am really excited to have a conversation with you guys. Fantastic. No, we are, we are pumped to have you. So we're going to dive right in. So, so we have a course and it's all about program design. And, and one of the things we truly try to teach early on is, hey, listen, uh, it really doesn't matter how many initials and credentials you have after your name, because if someone doesn't like to spend time with you and the athletes don't even want to be there and, and be within your presence, uh, it's not really that important about how many fancy credentials that you have. So can you talk about how important it is for us as coaches and trainers uh, for us to be able to build rapport and gain trust with the individuals and clients that we're working with? Yeah. 
absolutely. I think um, uh, in my time spent as an internship coordinator, this was probably one of the most important points I would have to just continue to hammer away with the young strength coach, right? They come in and they want to be in strength and conditioning because they love strength and conditioning, right? Like they, they want to teach people how to lift weights. They want to teach them to move better on the field. They're really gung-ho about the X's and O's. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, right? Like I want to encourage that. Um, but often the piece that they miss is that, that like you said, that information is, <laughs> it's useless if the athlete won't take it from you, won't learn it from you and listen to you about it. So um, when it comes to speaking to the importance of it, I think there's a couple different, a couple different routes to look at this. You know, the first one, like we're talking about here is just like getting results. Like, do you actually want to get results or are you just excited to share information? Um, I think when you look at our role as a, as a coach or a leader, or mentor, or anything like that, um, we get so excited about uh, the, <laughs> the process of what we're doing, right? Being able, we get excited that we're learning new information and now we get to share it. And uh, we kind of forget that our athletes don't, care about the information the same way that we do right like I love strength and conditioning my athletes love their sport they don't actually care as much about what I care about right and so um, being able to understand kind of see through your athletes eyes in that manner um, for, is the first step to being able to understand why you have to build rapport with them. Um, the, you will not get the results if they're not listening to you. And they will not listen to you if you can't communicate to them in a way that they understand. They have to, you, you have to reframe the information to them in a way that uh, speaks to the things that they actually care about. Um, if you don't know what they care about, you haven't gotten to know them, um, then you can't speak that way. And then it just becomes this like, you're banging your head against the wall, trying to figure out why you're not getting the results that you want, right? They're, they're not getting faster, even though I'm doing all the right drills and all the right lifts and all these things. Well, how are you teaching them, right? Like, what is the actual process of teaching look like? Um, and the big, you know, part about that is their willingness to listen. So you have to, you have to give a little bit, right? In order for them, in order to get something back from them, right? And that is them actually listening, them actually caring and putting in the effort that is necessary to get the results that you're looking for. Um, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, no. You're the guest here. We want to hear from you. <laughs> I was just going to say, I think like the second part to look the second part to take into consideration, it's not just the results that we have to focus on, uh, but it's also our responsibility as a coach to build rapport and trust with them because of the role that we play. Um, it's specifically in the collegiate environment. We spend more time with these athletes than anyone else. Um, we, we are allowed to spend the most time with them. And we're also, we also end up being kind of like the hangout place, right? Um, you know, people, they just come into the weight room if they're like in between classes or before practice or whatever it is, right? And so we end up spending a lot of time with them. And whether we want to um, admit it or recognize it or not, we play a strong part in who they are from um, as 18 to 22 year olds. 
we have a large impact, a large influence on them. And if we're not um, being really intentional about how that or what that influence is, um, we could hurt them as people. If we're setting a bad example because we're just unaware or not caring about the way we impact them on a daily basis, um, that will transcend in their life elsewhere. And, and they will pick up bad habits. They will, <laughs> we're influencing them whether we'd like it or not. And so it's our responsibility to take that into consideration and then do the best we can with that opportunity in front of us. So I think both from a physical results standpoint, but also just the responsibility to be a good example in their life. So I'm going to pick up where you're, you're leaving off there in terms of responsibilities and, and that the strength and conditioning and, and fitness industry has evolved quite a bit, especially in the time that, that we've been doing it. And, you know, Mike's going on 20 years, I'm going on year 25. And, you know, it's with that, it's added additional responsibilities to take care of things like culture. And that could be in a team setting and performance, or it could even be the culture of your facility in, in, in your gym uh, and in the private sector. So Unfortunately, our, our skill sets in education in traditional, you know, uh, strength and conditioning and, and exercise science uh, and certifications don't really, you know, it's more biased on, on sets and reps. It doesn't really prepare us for this. So how do we handle these responsibilities? Because like you said, we get them whether we want them or not. And how do we also still do that and stay within our lane? Yeah, um, that's that's the art, right? <laughs> it's funny you say that. Um, there's like, it's not just a perception that our, that our development is highly outweighed on the technical side, right? Like research shows that that is a fact. It is not just something that we think or assume. Um, and so that's a major problem, right? We understand as we're talking about right now, we wear so many hats yet. Um, it's kind of like a surgeon operating in the fog when we don't actually, uh, have an understanding and, and, uh, a development within those interpersonal skills that are required of us in these positions. So that's, I mean, that's honestly a huge reason why art of coaching exists in the first place is to provide that development that just doesn't currently really exist in our field. Um, but then, you know, speaking to your point now about like supporting that culture and wearing all these hats yet staying in your lane. Um, that's really as much as we want to make it a, uh, a more definable uh, and analytical process, right? We want to like have this step-by-step -step black and white, like <laughs> this is what you have to do in order to stay in your lane and support your culture, right? It, it just isn't that, right? It's, a, it's more complex in nature. It's chaotic because there's so much that goes into your context, um, whether, and that, that involves so many things, right? That can involve um, the stakeholders or the amount of people that all the different people that have to have to do with your responsibilities in your environment, everybody from uh, your, your sport coaches and the staff um, to the dynamic of the team, the different personalities that you have with on that team. Um, or if you're in the private setting, it's the dynamic of the coaches, everybody on your staff in the department. Um, when you, the more people you add to a situation, the more complex it is. Why? Because human behavior is complex. People are complex and chaotic. So you're just going to develop, you have to develop some sort of social agility in order to be able to like pick things up and 
uh, I guess the way I kind of look at it is like um, read the defense. So I grew up playing, uh, playing basketball. My older brother was my, was my basketball coach growing up. And one of the, one of the first things he ever taught me about that was to read the defense, right? So as the point guard, when you're coming off of a ball screen, um, you're going to watch what the defense does, right? If they follow you, you're going to take the ball to the basket, right? If they step under the screen, you're going to step back and shoot it. You take what the defense gives you. And I, social agility is, is that within a, a social standpoint, right? You have to read what the context is giving you in order to be able to leverage the opportunities that you have. Does that, does that make sense? I'm coming, totally. I, I promise I'm coming around. <laughs> I promise I'm coming around here. But when you're able then to see what the defense is giving you in a social context, um, that's when you're going to be able to understand, okay, what lanes, okay, I have to stay in my lane, but first you have to be able to recognize what lanes are open, what lanes need to be filled, what roles are there that, um, that are not currently being provided or what services are not currently be, being provided that you have the capability to either, like, you might already have the skills to, to fill that role, or you might need to develop them. Um, and then get the, the, I think the third step is really getting the okay from everybody involved in order to fill that role. Does that, does that make sense? Kind of those three different pieces to it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and then what makes it even more complex is that this, even though you're saying the same message to a room of 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 athletes, it's not getting heard the same way across the room. And so one of the things that, that of many things that stood out from conscious coaching was that talking about the, the unique personality types and being able to, to coach uniquely to each one of them. And, you know, I, I always say simply, there's some kids that need that pat in the back and there's some kids that, that need the kick in the ass and, and the art is knowing the difference between the two. Right. And so yeah. uh, can you kind of speak to how we begin to recognize some of these various archetypes and what are some examples in, in how you would coach each one differently? Yeah. Um, okay. So I think, I think first just helping our listeners understand what an archetype is. It's just a model, right? Um, it is not a cookie cutter, black and white. This is the answer. And that's really important to recognize because of the complexity that is human behavior. These are patterns of behavior that have been shown um, but that doesn't mean if you start to recognize this modeled or pattern of behavior, it doesn't mean that your athlete is always that in every single context. It just means that you're seeing this pattern in this context with your athlete right now in their life where they're at. Um, and that could be if you were if you've worked in the or with like children at all, you'll recognize that from year to year, <laughs> they are very different people, right? And that was something that was one of my favorite things as a collegiate strength conditioning coach was recognizing the difference and getting to see the growth from the 18 year old freshman that comes in to the 22 year old senior, uh, 23, you know, depending on how many years, the COVID year, you know, they were all in there for seven, eight years or whatever it was, but um, getting to see the maturity and the growth from the 18 year old to the 22 plus um, is uh, extremely rewarding. Um, but also it's just proof to this fact that um, human behavior and these archetypes are are ever evolving and ever changing. And so that's our where we come in. The art of it is to recognize how these things are changing, right? And so 
um, I think a great process really to start to recognize, you know, maybe where some of your athletes or this doesn't have to do with just athletes, right? This could be your staff or um, anybody that you're trying to have a relationship with, right? Um, recognizing a little bit of a process to recognize some of these patterns and how they fall in. Um, we, we have a tool called a, a 3R framework. So step one, research. Step two, relate. Step three, reframe. Um, and so the first step to recognizing, you know, do they fall into some of these archetypes is, uh, is that research, finding out as much as you can about the person. So obviously that has a lot to do with asking really great questions, right? Um, open-ended questions that allow them to expand on something. You know, obviously we don't learn a lot about a person if, if it's uh, just a yes or no. I call those just like low bang for your buck questions. You know, what's your favorite color? Green. Okay, great. I know one more thing about you as opposed to what do you think about this? Now, whenever they have this, you know, several minute long explanation about how they view something, you've now been keyed in a little bit to maybe their, their thought process, like how they get from point A to point B. Um, are they, you know, are they like very step-by-step -step process? Like me, I'm, I tend to skew a little bit more analytical in things where I'm like, okay, step one, do this. Step two, right? I like things to be uh, laid out nicely for me. And I'll communicate that way too. On the flip side, you might notice that they, they describe things in a little bit more of like metaphor or analogy. They tend to be more global thinkers, right? And so just just by allowing them to expand on an answer, they're going to tell you exactly how their, their brain works. So now when you're trying to teach them how to clean, instead of giving them a step-by-step, -step, okay, pull from the ground, wait till the bar gets into the hip crease, then pull again and push it, right? You're gonna cue them a little bit differently. Like, hey, just think up. All I want you to do is get as high as you can, think vertical as, as much as you possibly can, and then just catch the bar, right? Don't worry about anything else. You might cue them completely different ways just because they answered a question a certain way. And so that research step has so much more to do than just the message that they're giving you, the answer that they give you, but also your ability to observe how they go about answering that question just that piece then allows you to start to think, okay, you know, just a couple, uh, like my favorite example, my favorite archetype, um, <laughs> I shouldn't say my favorite. The one that I always laugh at is, uh, is the Royal, right? And the Royal, uh, the Royal I experienced when I worked with wide receivers. I worked with a lot of football teams and wide receivers tended to fall into a certain pattern of behavior. They like to be in the spotlight. They like to be the playmaker. Um, they show a lot of confidence. Um, and honestly, like they're pretty competent about the skill that they're doing, right? They might not know everything else that's going on, but they're pretty competent about what they have to do, right? So they have some strengths um, that also, they have, right, they have a persona. They have some strengths because 
a lot of confidence is a huge strength, right? Like we might look at it and be like, oh, that guy's a little bit of, you know, has some pride. Um, okay. If, if you're like me, that's something that kind of annoyed me, especially as a young coach who was like a D3 athlete. I just like worked my butt off. Like I was not very skilled in anything, but man, I worked my butt off to try to play. Right. And so as a young coach that, you know, that playmaker who was just very naturally gifted, I'm like, you know, like, come on. But when I kind of reframed my thought process about it, I'm like, that's actually a strength of theirs because something, a weakness of my own was I didn't have a lot of confidence and that definitely impacted my performance on a daily basis. So if that negatively impacts my, my performance, being really confident is a great performance enhancer, right? So that was a strength for the Royal. On the flip side, it also led to some weaknesses. Um, and so within each archetype, right? We have like this persona, we have some strengths that go along with that. We have some weaknesses that go along with it. Um, but then there's also, because of those strengths and weaknesses, that's like showing us the defense, right? Going back to my earlier analogy of reading the defense. Okay, now how can I leverage their strengths and weaknesses to help me communicate with them on a uh, on a deeper level, help me connect with them on a deeper level? So for instance, with the Royal, um, if they if they really uh, you know they love what they do they have that self confidence they probably like talking about themselves a little bit so I'm gonna ask them I'm gonna be like hey tell me about like the biggest play you ever made and like why was that so exciting right and I just want to watch them tell this story because they light up right and now like I said earlier what I've done is I've I've listened to how they answer the question. You know, was it a step-by-step -step analytical thing or was it more global in nature? Did they tell me a movie, right? They were the star of their own movie. Um, but it also has then showed them, you know, I'm going to follow up with some questions. I'm going to refer back. I'm going to be like, oh, like what, you know, who is all at that game? Like, did you have a lot of people at that game? Now I'm also finding out who, who are the influential people in their life. Um, and that just leads for more follow-ups, right? You know, oh, how's your mom doing? Or how's your brother doing? Things like that. Um, that shows that I care, right? That shows that I listened to what they said. And I actually care about them beyond their ability to make be the playmaker, right? And so now I've given a little, right? I give them an opportunity to talk about themselves because they like to do that. Um, but I've also started to, you know, dig a little bit of this trust hole, right? I'm, I'm taking a shovel and I'm taking a scoop and throwing it behind me. And I started that process simply by just, you know, giving a little in order to get a little. So uh, again, long winded there, but <laughs> did I actually answer your question? <laughs> well, I love no. the fact it brought up wide receiver and and Mike, before I pass it on to you, you know, I, I, I worked in the NFL for a bunch of years and, and, um, you could absolutely see, I mean, the famous line Terrell Owens said is I love me some me. Um, and <laughs> yeah. uh, a friend of mine who is a strength coach, uh, talked about one of his top receivers who, and this speaks to your point of how they don't love strength and conditioning. Um, generally with that archetype is what I found is like, and he had this guy who's a hall of fame wide receiver. And he told him right before kickoff one game, he says, listen, he says, you pay me for Monday through Saturday this year, we're about to do that's on me. This is free. Right. He, and so he wanted no part. He did the weight room because he had to, he, he just wanted to show up on Sunday and play where I've had other kids like that. I work with the high school level. They, they could probably care less if they actually played in a game on Friday night, they would be just as happy to lift all week long and be part of that culture, January through, through August. 
And so knowing that is obviously going to slant how we coach them as well and what we can expect from them. So, uh, and and with that, I I guess it it changes a a little bit of kind of, and and I don't want to get too far off the line, um, is it changes the agreements you have to kind of make with them where those, those Royals, tell me if I'm on track here. Those are the ones you kind of have to make the agreements with say, look, I know you're not the weight room guy. You're not the guy. How about just give me this right for this amount of time or this amount of effort or this, and then you're good. Go do whatever you got to do. Right. Is that, is that on track? Absolutely. And it's funny that you bring that up because that is, that's an exchange tactic, right? There's specific, there's specific influence tactics that we can use and leverage with our athletes based on the information that we gather from them, right? Based on that research. So um, in your example, uh, step two in the three R framework is to be able to relate. So if they're, if they're giving you, you know, they're telling you the answers, right? They're telling you what they care about and how they see themselves, right? They're telling you about their self-image and how they perceive what their strengths and weaknesses are and, and what they care about, things like that. But if you can then take, if you can utilize that information to relate what you're having to ask them to do uh, to something that they actually care about, which can be difficult when you're working with some elite athletes, right? Because at that point, you're kind of like, okay, is what I'm doing, like, I'm just trying not to hurt you at this point. Like, we have <laughs> we have to make sure that at the end, like, out of everything that we do here, it is it has to help you, right? Um, and so being able to find those, the different opportunities in front of you, right? So, you know, does an exchange tactic work with that specific athlete? Yes. Okay. Because why? Because they play like, like you said, like Sunday is Sunday is for them. And you're like, look, this is where I think this, I think this is where you building trust and rapport, um, and having some sort of referent power or like likability, if they like you, that's another tactic that you can use because you're like, look, this is my job, please. Like, I have to ask you to do this and I have to have you do this. Please do it just for me. (laughs) If nothing else, if you could just do this for me today, um, you're gonna make my life a lot. Please don't make my job harder than it has to be, right? And that was something, that was something that, uh, I found to be very, very helpful with <laughs> with my student athletes and things like that, especially um, I even had I had bosses who would help us utilize that. Right. So as the assistants, he might get on us in front of the athletes to make those athletes feel a little bad for us. So they'd be more willing to listen to what we were telling them to do because then they felt a little bad for us. And I'm like, see, we're, we're, we're leveraging, we're using the opportunities in front of us um, <laughs> to get the results that we need to get, right? Because that's our job. At the end of the day, it is our job to get results. And, um, and, and our ability to, this is where, you know, the, our ability to build those relationships with our athletes really helps us do that, not just from their effort, but also also almost like creates this team environment of like, look, like I'm not just your coach, I'm your teammate. I'm here helping you. This is my, this is my role on our team to help us get to this goal, whether we're in the NFL and trying to win a Super Bowl, or if we're at, at the high school level and we're just trying to make them great athletes in general, right? Build well-balanced and uh, human beings, right? Being physically cultured, if you will. Um, look, you know, I'm trying to help you. This is, I am not 
I am not the 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 legit. I don't have I do have legitimate power or positional power over you, but I'm not I'm not trying to force you to do this. I'm trying to help you. So work with me here, right? And having them, you know, being having the ability to really leverage that uh, that referent referent power, like you speak of, like you're on the right track here, right? <laughs> I think as coaches, we've all uh, the more experience that we have the more ways we've learned to solve this problem of getting the athlete to do <laughs> what we want them to do. That, that is, that's a lot to, I'm like over here, like writing notes and, and, and like trying to like put these little sort of notes into my, my phone, into the piece of paper until stuff to look at later. Um, <laughs> that's, that's some really good stuff. Hey everybody, a quick break in the action here. Hope you're enjoying the show and we appreciate you listening. We're working hard to bring you the highest quality content and best guests every single week. So if you could do us a big favor and go and like and subscribe to the show on whatever platform you get your podcasts on, it would be greatly appreciated. Be sure to listen at the end of the show also to find out where you can find out more information about our courses, as well as a special discount code for all our listeners. Thanks again, and let's get back to the show. So let's talk about the dynamic of coaching across uh, genders. So um what do we need to know, uh, you know, when, when a male strength and conditioning coach is working with a female and vice versa is, is, do you see any, any difference in tactics or are there things that maybe we should be thinking about that we're not thinking about when it comes to working with athletes of the opposite gender? Yeah. Um, I think at, at the foundation, the process looks the same, right? You're, you're reading the context and reading the de defense. It starts with that. Um, and part of that is understanding the perception uh, that has changed now because the, you know, from a female, female athlete to female coach is one perception. And that'll differ depending on the stakeholders, the, the, the audience, um, as well as now, say, male athlete, female coach or vice versa. Um, their perception has changed, right? That impacts their perception of you. And I think... Uh, a key concept to kind of pull from this is what we call just theory of mind. It's our ability at its simplest form. I think it's, it's our ability to see through somebody else's eyes. So my ability to see through my wide receivers, uh, see the world through my wide receivers eyes, or more importantly, in this specific context, see myself through his eyes. What does he think about me? If I don't know that, then there's no way for me to coach him in a way that is tailored to his specific way of understanding. And I think it's important here to point out, like, we're not, I'm not talking about like treating everybody like a special snowflake. Like <laughs> that is not, that is, that is absolutely not the way um, that I would that I would tell anybody to do things, but the better you can understand that perception, the easier it's going to be for you to read the defense and adjust, right? And so, I think something that really helped me in my own experience was uh, three questions that I got from Ron McKeefrey. and he he just talked about them at a, at a clinic, how, however many years ago that I was there, at, but I'd never, I will never forget these because I took them and used them immediately. And it was, um, who is the most influential person in your life? Um, if you weren't playing your sport, what would you be doing? 
And what is the most difficult thing you've ever been through? And those three questions alone, um, when, when I pull an athlete into my office for a one-on-one -on -one meeting and take the time to ask them these questions and, um, in a, in a setting, you know, get them out of the weight room. Right. And so I think, uh, uh, removing removing the setting right does decrease some of the complexity so you get them out of out of the weight room out of this team based chaotic loud environment you change the setting a little bit and you bring it to one that is hey the focus is on you i want to get to know you a little bit um because when i asked them those questions it really opened my eyes to the variety of people that I was working with. I think as a coach, I started to, I took these archetypes and, and that's how I was really alone, just seeing my athlete, like purely in this, uh, on the field or on the court or in the weight room environment, right? And I, I became, I started to become a little bit narrow-minded as to who they are as a person. And I, I forgot to take into account that they're, <laughs> they might act a completely different way when they're at home. They might act a completely different way when they're in the classroom or, at, you know, in a social environment or, or any of these things. The environment plays a huge role in how we um, manage our impression and how we manage our personality or express our personality. And what this allowed me to do, it, like I said, it just opened my eyes a little bit more to the things that they really care about, right? Are they actually there because they care a lot about being great at their sport and their position? Or are they there because it is, um, the scholarship is a way out and they can provide something for their family if they do really, really well here. Because if that's their main goal, man, like me yelling at them about like, supporting, you know, get this weight on your back and stand it up so that you can just clobber the guy across from you not saying that that's not a good tactic to use, but is it really the best tactic to use with him? Um, you know, starting to understand like what is really important to them. I learned things about these guys that I would have never guessed because I don't even, I'm not, <laughs> as a coach, I tried to stay off of social media, right? I did not want to accidentally get some Snapchat from my student athletes that would, you know, make me have to give them in trouble or punish them <laughs> or something like that, right? I tried to avoid that at all costs. Uh, but one athlete in specific, like he was a, a, a D lineman. And, uh, and I asked him, I was like, you know, what would you be doing if you weren't playing your sport right now? And he's, I'd be a fashion designer. He wanted to be a fashion icon, right? And he had started, he already had started his own business. He was you know, posting different fashionista pictures and all this stuff. And I'm like, holy crap, I would have never, I would have never thought that. Um, and so, so to bring it back ultimately to this cross-gender type deal, that is just another layer of complexity, right? It hinders, it makes it harder for you to see life through their lens. So it makes all the more, um, makes it all the more important for you to take the time to ask questions and seek understanding, um, really expand your theory of mind to be able to see life through their lens as best you can. Um, and I wanted to share one more example with this because, and I, I just thought of it right now, but when I was a, 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 in high school <clears throat> playing basketball, 
I had a, a coach who had just come, he was, uh, he had just come from uh, school, right? So a younger male coach, teacher, he was my math teacher, and he was my basketball coach all at the same time. And uh, he also lived three doors down from me. And so often he would bring me home from school after practice. And years after, after this experience um, of him being my coach, he told me that it was so the, the ride home was so valuable to him because it helped him to see life in high school through a teenage girl's mind. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that's a really good point because I'm sure we viewed things a lot differently at that point. So I think it just I, I think it's just one of those things that um, lays another a layer of complexity and it forces you to seek that understanding even more. Well, one more thing to piggyback on that, and and I don't know, and you spend much more time kind of studying the the, the science of of and the, and the art of coaching is um, in working across genders. Do you find that um, sometimes males we we try to be a little too soft to to uh, female athletes and don't give them enough credit? Where on the flip side, the the female coaches are almost a little more militant with the guys to try to get that that legitimacy with them do you see that trend you know it's it's funny if you would have asked me maybe five years ago I probably would have agreed with you um, but I think I've worked in enough settings and with enough coaches um, so you, you at the beginning you said my bio like I've been all over the place and worked with a variety of different people personalities coachings things like that um, and I've seen so many different strategies um, and so and so I think in some cases, yes, um, I, I would, I've seen, I've absolutely seen those things before, um, but that's all, those are, have also been situations as, you know, as the only female on staff, um, if we, if there was a male coach having an issue with a female athlete, like I was the person they came to, to ask for advice on that stuff. And I'm like, okay, just like, what do you know about them? You know, have you, have you asked them what is, what motivates them or what drives them? Have you asked them why they're playing their sport? Um, have you asked them about their, their family life and things like this? I'm like, you have to get to know them in order to understand what truly is, um, truly is going to drive and, and motivate them on a regular basis. Um, I've also seen, <laughs> I've also seen uh, that in myself just morph, right? As a young coach, I saw other female coaches coach male athletes a certain way. So that's what I mimicked, right? I'm like, I'm like, oh, that must be the way it's supposed to be. And so initially I would come in and I'm like, all right, this is the way I got to be, right? Like I've seen it work before. So this must be the answer. And through experience, I learned that that's not always the answer. That's not always the role I should be playing. Um, and that's not always what the athlete needed. And so I think you would see um, in, in coaches who have been, uh, uh, like if you watch the, the experience and the morphing of a coach from young coach to experienced coach, I think that's something you'll see change as time goes on. Um, because, because you'll start to realize that things aren't working. You'll, you'll recognize if you're not getting results. A, um, you'll either recognize it yourself or B, you'll get fired 
because that's the nature of what we do. You have like you have to get results. So um, to answer, <laughs> I guess to come full circle then and answer your question, I'm like, yes, I have seen those things before, um, but they don't always work. And so I've also seen people seek the answers because they've seen them not work. So now I want to go back to, to uh, an expression that I love that you said that that's sticking to my mind right now is to talk about reading the defense and being able to have those gauges in front of you to know uh, when things are going well and when they're not. And so I want to go on kind of two parts of this. Let's talk about in terms of on the higher tech side, um, how much can we lean into data and feedback from numbers from things like HRV, sleep, performance markers as potential gateways for conversations about potential psychological factors that could be playing it? Oh, I think that's extremely useful and a tactic myself that I used. Um, so the things as simple as my Apple Watch, my Aura Ring, um, the Whoop watches, I had several athletes who they would see me and I, I was, especially as a coach, um, it was very important to me that the athletes saw me living the way I was telling them to live their lives. Um, and so in my programming, I, you know, I, I took it pretty seriously, right? I would program a, a whole semester's worth of sheets. And then I was always at least one phase ahead of where my team was. Um, and now this, you know, when it's several teams, you obviously can't do all the programs, right? But I would pick one and do it. Um, and so my athletes very often saw me kicking my own butt, right? Doing the things that I was asking them to do. And I did everything, right? If I was telling them to lift really heavy um, with an ISO at the bottom, like I was doing it, I was doing it as well. Um, if it was uh, 60 yard shuttles or 300 yard shuttles or anything that it was like with the the soccer players like that was the hardest things that they had to do was their conditioning tests I would go out and do them with them sometimes um, because because I really truly believed that if they could see me taking this stuff seriously as well and willing to do it um, it definitely rolled over in, into a couple things one their willingness to do it but also um, their belief that they could do it because I, I'm like look ladies like I'm a 30-year-old washed-up D3 basketball player, okay? If I can get this on your fitness test, so can you. Like, there's there's no reason, right? There's no reason you can't train and progress and get to this point, right? And so it gave them also this sense of like, oh, like, I can do this, right? Because a lot of times they didn't believe that. Um, within that process, then, they saw me tracking these things. And so they're like, so then that led them to ask about it, right? Like, oh, what does that do? So then I'm opening up my phone and showing them these apps. And I'm like, look, like I can actually track, you know, like what it is that, you know, how my body is responding and recovering to these things. I would talk to my athletes a lot about stress management um, because I could only have them in my hands for so long, right? It was uh, our, our success depended on them having some sort of understanding about how to manage their own stress as well. And so I, I talked to the, I educated them all the time about stress management, right? It was just something we talked about consistently. Um, and so them seeing these things now, all of a sudden they're like, Oh, you know, maybe I need that. So it starts with them then having an Apple watch for more than just answering their text messages or phone calls. Right now they're like, Oh, I can do that on my Apple watch. Um, and they'll start tracking these things. And then 
will share things and they're like, oh, do you see my update on there? I'm like, yeah. So using all of that allowed for these conversations. I'm like, look, you probably didn't get a lot. You're obviously you didn't get a lot of sleep last night. You know, now look at how you perform today. This is what research shows a softball player, um, your batting average uh, consistently and, and very drastically decreases when you don't get the sleep that you need. Go to bed. <laughs> and they're like, oh, because now it's not just me telling them. Now they've actually seen the data and that that spoke to them, right? Now, this takes us back to understanding our athlete. It didn't work for every athlete, right? Some athletes didn't care. And, and that is just the, the reality of the situation. So I couldn't use that tactic with them. Um, but I did see that a lot of the athletes that I did work with did, did care and it did help with them. So to speak to that, yes, absolutely. That use of data spoke to a large, uh, a large portion of my athletes. Now let's shift gears and let's go low tech. So, and, and I'm thinking of a situation that literally happened yesterday. I'm working with a high school baseball team and one of my kids, who's kind of the the energy setters in the room, kind of the, one of the alpha guys. And he was, he was not doing well. He was just like, is, is we were deadlifting. He's not hitting the numbers that he wanted to. And I could just see he wasn't him and talk about how impactful, like I just off to the side, kind of grabbed him and just said three words. Are you good? And like the, the look on his face was a combination of like relief and like, thank you actually for asking. Right. And, and kind of then said, look, understand, you're not going to always have that a day. Understand sleep's going to impact it. How's your sleep? How's your nutrition? How's your stress levels? Like those things are going to impact you. Like you're not going to go and you don't, nobody bats a thousand. So tell me how impactful just low tech saying like, are you good? Like how impactful can that be? Yeah. Um, again, it, it so <clears throat> Something I want to, I think a good point to make here is the, the strength of rational persuasion, which is a, one of the influence tactics, um, is your use of like facts and logic to try to persuade or um, change people's mind, right? Um, and as especially as strength and conditioning coaches, high tech side, like you just said, we lean on that data a lot and, and we want to make logical sense to our athletes. Um, but ultimately, most of us, like emotion is almost always going to trump logic in our decision making. You look at the stuff that you buy on a regular basis. How many of those things make 100% logical sense for you to spend your money on um, as opposed to like, oh, I just, I just want this $8 coffee. <laughs> I just want it, right? That's an emotional decision. Um, and then after we've made the emotional decision, we like, have all these facts, we back it up with all this facts and logic so to make, oh yeah, yeah, we, we convince ourselves in that way that it's a good decision. Um, so making this point that like rational persuasion is not as powerful as uh, taking advantage of that likability or that referent power and, and addressing an emotional response, right? And so when you low tech option, as you're putting it, when you tap into uh, uh, an emotional uh, motivation or an emotional response to your athlete purely by just asking them if they're okay. Um, that is one of the most, one of the strongest influence tactics that you can use. And it's more likely to work with anybody than sharing these 
the the data on their on their whoop watch or or ring or whatever it is right it has been shown to work and i i should have made that point earlier that like me having you know showing them all this data and whatnot with those athletes those are with athletes that I've already built a trusting relationship, right? I'm not starting off with that data on day two that I've met this team, right? I am over time building this trusting relationship. And then I go to some rational persuasion because at this point, they know me well enough to see me as an expert. Um, they see me work hard. So that now they perceive me as an expert, right? So now I can talk to them as an expert would talk to them because they're actually seeking to learn from me. Like, it's not just that I was like, hey, you're going to listen to me because of this data. No, now they're actually seeking that information and that's when it really works for me. And so, if especially if it's just a group of athletes that you're just getting to know, I would absolutely be veering on the side of what's going on, right? Uh, you know, are you good? I'm not, like, you're not performing the way you normally perform. Is everything okay? Or what do you need? And doing that, again, speaks to them as a person not just not just a number on a paper, um, which is, uh, especially if they're on a football team, how many teammates do they have? Like, there's a lot of them, right? Up to 120 or 130, or where, I guess it depends on where you're at, um, the number of walk-ons who come on in the collegiate environment or whatever it is. But if you don't ever show that, the data is not gonna mean anything to them. They won't care. So, you know, we, we spent a lot of time talking about like learning about the individual and how they respond, et cetera. Um, and I want to talk about mental toughness a little bit because mental toughness is something that a lot of people talk about, but we don't have a true definition. So the question I have for you is when it comes to mental toughness, what does that actually mean to you? And can we take that information, whatever it may be, and can we leverage it so we can actually translate it over to performance improvement? Yeah, that's a great question. I think this is something, again, a conversation that I would have pretty often with my intern groups um, and with my athletes as well, um, which was sometimes hard. I had to, um, depending on the verbiage and the nomenclature that their sport coach would use with them, I would have to change my verbiage, right? Because the worst thing I could do as a support staff member was tell them that their coach was wrong, right? <laughs> I can't, I, that, would, that would absolutely not help us achieve our goals as a group, as a team. Um, and so this conversation, how I, how I learned from other mentors and coaches that I worked with in the past, Pat Ivey and um, Kaz Kazadi being two of them, um, was this differentiation between um, mental toughness and physical toughness. And really that ended up defining mental toughness as your ability to think right. Um, your ability to separate your emotions from logical and rational decision-making. And ultimately what I was teaching them to do was how to make good decisions. And so when they're going through an adverse situation, um, teaching them how to analyze the environment, right? You can't analyze the environment if you're freaking out. So first and foremost, you just got to stop freaking out, right? And we came DFO. We would just go around telling, don't freak out. <laughs> we would just go around telling people that. And with some teams, um, I found that I had groups that were more analytical. And so I would give them a step-by-step -step process, right? I'd say, hey, the, the, tar or the, the red flag, if we start to see it, first thing we do is say DFO, right? Second thing we do is take a deep breath, right? 
slow yourself down. Okay, now let's analyze the situation. And so by teaching them, giving them tools, right, to understand, to give them a little bit of education on um, their brains, right, how uh, emotions are going to come on strong and fast, and especially as collegiate athletes, like, sorry, guys and girls, like your brains aren't fully developed yet. Like you, like you're, it's going to be harder for you to overcome an emotional decision than it is for me because my, I have a higher, like my brain is more developed because I'm older than you. Like that's just, that is how it is. Um, so a recognize that this is not easy. Like you have to recognize that mental toughness is not an easy process and it's not just something you will yourself through. This is, there is, there can be a process here. There's information to understand, to help you be more quote unquote mentally tough, to help you think right. And so we would talk about things like, um, things like their motivation, right? Very few of the athletes had ever thought about why they played their sport, right? And so, although that those answers can tend to be pretty shallow in nature, um, that's where we started because they hadn't thought about it yet. So that would, relatively, that's deeper than they've ever thought, right? So we walk them through that process. And then from there, I'm walking them through basically a root cause analysis, which is, okay, why is that important to you? Okay, this is why I play, to get a scholarship. Okay, why is a scholarship important to you? Well, uh, because my mom and dad said I should get a scholarship. Okay, why do your mom and dad want you to get a scholarship? right? And literally just walking them through a deeper thought process. Um, and now I don't want anybody to get this misconstrued. Like this is not like a sit down classroom lesson that I'm teaching them. How I implemented the, these things and taught them these things took a lot of time. Like full semesters, I would have like a, because again, I'm a checklist type of brain, you know, I would outline a quote unquote curriculum, but the last 10 minutes of our lift sessions were, all right, today's lesson is about fear of failure, okay? Here we go. And we would talk about fear of failure. Um, today's lesson is, all right, why is this important to you? Today's lesson is, what are what motivates you? Okay, today's lesson, and we would just break it down. And those curriculums very much flexed and adapted um, with a variety of different things. One, like what was the theme of that the sport coaches had uh, defined the season by, right? Very often my sport coach would say, okay, our theme this year is conviction. And I'm like, great. I'm going to use the word conviction all the time with them. And I'm going to reframe this information with those ver with those words. Um, but we're still going to talk about these same principle foundations. Um, it depended, it might depend on the books that I was reading at the time. So, um, <clears throat> gosh, some of the, and it's funny, some of these books, uh, you know, the Five Dysfunctions of a Team by Patrick Lencioni, like that was one that I all like ultimately came back to often. The Trust Edge, um, I forget the author of that one, but if I was reading a good book that I was taking some some good points from, I'm like, hey, I might as well utilize that information and share it with my athletes. And again, I would so I would just use kind of that information and reframe it in a way that they understood based on the research I had done on them and was continuing to do with them. So when it comes to like a definition about what is mental toughness, um, A, I think it, in, in my setting as a collegiate strength conditioning coach, it was often their ability to think right. 
their ability to differentiate between physical toughness and mental toughness, their ability to make good decisions and critically think. That was, the I think, a very global way to look at it. Um, but with that said, it also depends on your context, on your uh, the current athletes or the current clientele that you're working with. Um, like mental toughness was di different for me because running a 60 yard shuttle was something I ex had exposed myself to often. And I have the genetics that made that not as difficult for me as maybe my very, very twitchy wide receiver. So let's use a 300 yard shuttle. <laughs> uh, he would puke every time every time that they did a 300 yard shuttle because that's the way his body adapted. Like he didn't have those strengths, right? So that task at hand was dip more difficult for him than it was for me. And so giving them and an opening their perception to, okay, what is mental toughness for you? Um, you know, again, different than physical toughness, but it, it's, it's different for everybody. What's most difficult for you? That's where your toughness is really gonna be key. And so one of the struggles we have as, as we get up against it with time here, it just kind of wrap it up with one la last quick point is and when I'm working with different coaches is, you know, screaming fourth quarter as we're doing those gassers at the end and how much that really doesn't translate. And so, and, and then using that, you know, when I'll show up sometimes and they'll be like, oh, they had a crappy practice today, beat them up. And it's like, that's, that's making this negative connection with, with training that I don't want to do. And now, you know, let's make them run a bunch of other plays. Cause that's what the problem is. Why don't we create the negative connection with you? Not me. Right. So, um, the, the whole no pain, no gain, you know, mentality and training is punishment. If, if we could sum up in 60 seconds, like how do we flip that? Uh, people reject change for all sorts of different reasons. Uh, it could be fear of, um, like it could be a power thing. Like if I, if they feel that you're challenging their, their superiority, like they don't want to change. If it's a uh, tradition, right? They just don't want to change because this is how it's always been. I think um, the answer to this question is whose mind are you trying to change? You have to know why they're resistant to that change before you can address getting them to change their mind about it. And so, um, when it comes to this particular topic, I think it's been, um, I think we, we look at what pain is or what difficulty is or what adversity is. Um, and when you really look at that, it's that all of that is relative in nature. Um, going back to my question that you would, that we ask our athlete, like what's the most difficult thing you've ever been through? The pain that you're putting them through and the difficulty and adversity that you put them through as a strength conditioning coach will come will relate to the the intensity of the pain and adversity that they felt elsewhere in their life. So when it comes to fourth quarter or getting on the train hard or whatever it is, like you have to whatever, you have to be able to relate it to their level of difficulty and adversity, right? Is this harder or easier than the things that they've experienced in their life prior to? And so if you're just implementing those things, thinking that it's going to work without really knowing your athletes, without really understanding the culture, without really understanding how the human brain works, you are wasting your time. And as a result, uh, 
that's a result. You're probably also hurting your athletes, right? Because now they're not going to get the most out of their training. They're probably going to get in some bad reps because they're all fatigued and whatnot. And now physically you are hurting them purely because you are uneducated about how to influence them in a specific way, which takes us back to the original point in, the, in this conversation about how little development as coaches we have in this realm of interpersonal and intrapersonal relationships. So the striving for having a better understanding of human behavior is the key to actually understanding how to expose them to adversity that will translate to the adversity that you want them to develop and adapt to and then thrive in in a game situation. Wow, we have, I mean, we have gotten a, a, an incredible amount of information at this point. Um, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm, my mind is blown. I can't, I, if you could see the amount of notes that I've, I've written down, um, <laughs> uh, I think you'd be amazed if I had like a whiteboard in front of me, I think it would be even better, but, um, we really appreciate your insight and, uh, Eric, I can, I'll let you finish up my friend. Awesome. So, uh, I guess the, 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 the last question I want to have is, is tell us kind of what you got going on it with art of coaching and what's new and exciting in 2023. What kind of projects you're working on? Awesome. Um, okay. So we have so much going on and I'm actually so excited. Um, the, the thing that we always have all year long, um, our go-to, uh, our kind of flagship live workshop is called the apprenticeship. So we've talked a lot today about different power bases and influence tactics to utilize. We've like in general, your ability to be socially agile, reading the defense. If you want to actually be coached, at getting better at those skills, come to the apprenticeship because that's it's a two-day event um, and they're hosted all over the nation every every year. Like um, you can apply to be a host if you'd like to do that. Um, but we host these events and um, let me warn you, it is immersive. You are going to be, you should feel overwhelmed, right? Because that slight overwhelm is where we actually adapt. It's the same as the weight room. Um, and so you can't, you can't adapt without a little bit of stress. We are going to expose you to this stress in this live workshop. And we are going to coach you, give you like tangible evaluation on the different aspects of the context and skills of social agility that, um, that'll allow you just to take with you and then uh, utilize that for the rest of your life, right? So huge. I am a huge proponent of getting this experience and being coached. Coaches need coaching too. And so I love the live workshop. The other thing that I really want to talk about is our 30 day challenge that we have coming up starting March 6th. Um, this particular challenge, it's a, it's a virtual deal. It's like a 30 day mini course. We'll give, you know, we drip content weekly. There's little video lectures um, there's worksheets and workbooks and activities that you could do. Um, but like I said, just a, a little mini course on how to speak and present more, um, more compelling and more persuasively. A lot of us as strength conditioning coaches and, and leaders in general, we, um, we pitch regularly. Um, we pitch our programs, we pitch ourselves in interviews, or we might be standing up at a conference and, and pitching as well. We might be on podcasts and things like this. Um, that's what this 30-day challenge is all structured about, and it's only $99. That comes out to less than $4 a day. So um, people, if this is something that you're interested in, and to really start to balance out this development of like 
the technical side being up here and these other skills being down here. Let's start to balance those out. That's a great opportunity for you to do so. Well, that, that sounds awesome. And so I can tell you, I'm, I'm all in for myself and want to thank you, uh, Rebecca, for your time and insight. This has been awesome. We could have went, went on for hours, but, uh, um, with that, um, we want to wrap things up and thank you all for listening. And this has been the principles of performance podcast. Thank you for listening to the Principles of Performance podcast. If you've enjoyed our content, please like and share on your social media outlets as well as subscribe and give us a review on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your preferred platform is to listen to. For more information on the Principles of Program Design courses and workshops, visit us at www.principlesofprogramdesign.com and follow us on all of the social media channels where we post new content every day. To save 10% on any PPD courses, enter the discount code PRINCIPLESPODCAST10 at checkout. If you have any questions we can answer or suggestions for the show, you can email us at info at principlesofprogramdesign.com or message us on social media. Thank you again for your support.